All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and for your word and for loving us. And Lord, you're so, so good to us. And so we do ask that you'd have your way with us, that you guide us and lead us by your spirit. And uh, just speak to our hearts now, Lord. Settle our hearts that we would receive from you, that we would, that our hearts would be that good, rich soil that would yield tremendous fruit that would bring glory to you. So please do that work in our hearts as only you can do, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 16. So... I really want to read 16 and 17 today. We'll read, I'll just tell you straight up, the beginning of 16, we'll kind of blow through, and the end of 17, we're going to kind of blow through. So there's your roadmap. And uh, so you don't have to worry too much. Jeremiah, uh, this book reminds us that uh, sometimes repetition is God's way of emphasis, right? And so guess what we're going to read about, as, you know, as we pick it up in chapter 16, we're going to read about the nation of Judah uh, prior to the invasion of the Babylonians in 586 B.C. was living a, a, a horrible idolatry. Horrible idolatry was rampant in the nation, and uh, God is going to bring judgment because God is just, but prior to that, as God so graciously does, he sent in warning after warning after warning by the mouth of this guy, Jeremiah. And so um, we see more, uh, more of that today, but I think in the midst of that, there are some beautiful lessons uh, to be had. I'll be candid with you. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 17 is one of, my f- one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, and I think it's, uh, it's just amazingly rich. So... Um, Chapter 16, the word of the Lord came, also came to me saying, you shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who were born in this place and concerning their mothers who bore them and their fathers who begot them in this land. They shall die gruesome deaths. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried, but they shall be like the refuse on the face of the earth. They shall be consumed by the sword and by famine, and their corpses shall be meat for the birds of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. So there's a little pick-me-up for your Sunday morning, right? So God called Jeremiah. You know, he goes back and forth. We see this man, Jeremiah, and we see the message of Jeremiah. And just like our lives, the message and the person go hand in hand, right? Uh, you recall Acts chapter 1 starts out, you know, uh, Luke is talking to Theophilus, and he's talking about, you know, the life of Jesus, what, that he, he, he was, what he did and, and said. I'm butchering it, but let's just not butcher it. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day which he was taken up, right? We do and we teach. Sometimes we teach with words. It's not just me standing up here teaching. You teach everybody around you that, that, you know, 
Here's, here's what you have to say. That's, that's a type of teaching. But we do in a way that's consistent. We live life in a way that's consistent. And Jeremiah, that's just part of, part of what he is, is a demonstration, and part of it is, is his words. And so God, part of the demonstration is God's calling Jeremiah to a life of singleness. And so, um, you know, we know that sometimes God does that. First Corinthians chapter 7 tells us that there's great value in being single, and that's God's will for some people. But in the Jewish culture particularly, even more so than our culture, um, being married and having children was so highly regarded that it was a little bit freakish to be single. And so uh, the idea here is that um, Jeremiah lives a life that's clearly separate and distinct from uh, the people in his nation. And so it would sort of call attention, like people would say, why are you uh, single and, you know, childless? And, um, he, you know, I, if you asked him, he'd probably answer you only once. You probably wouldn't ask him again. He'd say something like, for thus says the Lord concerning sons and daughters who are born in this place. And then he goes on, you know, that there's going to be destruction coming. And so um, that would be a great demonstration uh, from Jeremiah. He goes on, for thus says the Lord, verse 5, do not enter the house of mourning, nor go to lament or bemoan them, for I have taken away my peace from this people, says the Lord, loving kindness and mercies. And so Jeremiah was not to go to any funerals, right? God told Jeremiah, don't go to any funerals, because the funeral was to honor the dead, and um, much of the, the death that's coming is really God's punishment. So, um, you know, that would have been very difficult for him, and it would have been very unusual uh, again in that culture. He goes on. He says, verse 6, both the great and the small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried. Neither shall men lament for them, cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them. So the idea of cutting themselves or making themselves bald was part of the pagan ritual, right? Every culture deals with death in a certain way, right? One of the to me, one of the, and I see this in my, in, my, in my doctor life, one of the saddest things about COVID uh, is that, uh, that burials and funerals have been disrupted for a lot of people. And, um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a part of the grieving process, and I know this is sensitive because we've all, you know, we know people that have you know, that, that we've lost, that have been dear to us, that there's a part of the grieving process, you know, that, that to me, a great funeral is so valuable for um, uh, the, those that are left behind. I, I never really realized this until really in the last several years, is the, just the, the importance of a good funeral, Right? And part of it is because I've seen some awesome funerals. I've been a part of some funerals that I thought were just the Lord was all over it. And that's a rich time. It's a rich time for, for the family. It's a rich time for the community. And there's just a, a funeral can be a very cool thing. And so basically, you know, in this culture, God tells Jeremiah, don't, go, don't participate in that. Because really, these, these deaths are largely uh, punishment. And don't let them do their, their pagan rituals for the funeral. Uh, don't, don't even take part in that. Verse 7, he goes on. Nor shall men break bread in mourning for them to comfort them for the dead. Nor shall men give them, give them up 
give them the cup of consolation to drink for their father or their mother. So no pitchings after the funeral, right? Jeremiah, I mean, he's really cutting, it, cutting off all of his options here. Also, you shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them to eat and drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will cause to cease from this place before your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. So he's like, don't even go to any weddings. So you got to see this? God tells Jeremiah, don't take a wife, don't have kids, don't go to funerals, don't go to weddings. I mean, this would have been very distinct from the cultural norm of the day. And it shall be, verse 10, when you show, and in my Bible that word show is underlined, when you show these people, this people, all these words, and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great disaster against us? Or what is our iniquity? Or what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? And so you see this thing play out. Okay, He's showing them the message. That's one thing I want to highlight. We show a certain message just by living the life that we live, right? So, most of you know, we were on vacation last week. This is kind of funny. I've got to tell you a funny story just briefly. We're on vacation last week. We're in Florida. We go to a place that was, I think, built in the 60s, uh, where um, to say the place is full of empty nesters is a little bit of an understatement, Right? And so you got to kind of picture this vibe. Um, and there's not a ton of people because it's kind of the off season. But the people that are there are empty nesters. Some of them have been empty nesters for a few decades, right? <laughs> Everybody get the vibe? Right? And in walks this, boom, family like an explosion of seven kids and a mom and dad. You know, like when we go to the pool... It's hard no, not to notice, right? When we walk down the sidewalk past all their units, you know, we walk past and, you know, they all have this little courtyard and they're all eating their nice little wine and cheese dinner. Hey, what's up? You know, and these nine people. Anyway, so we were kind of visible there is my point. And this one lady, I'm walking to the beach and, um, and everybody else was already down there, so I was by myself. This lady, hey, can I ask you a question? Sure. What religion are you guys? <laughs> it gets better. She says, I said, well, we're... First of all, how would you answer that question? Well, we're just sort of non-denominational Christians that love the Lord. And in our church, we teach the Bible. And it's otherwise pretty chilled. Now, if I were going to go there this week, I'd say, we have some people wearing fur coats and some people wearing camo, but I didn't know that yet. <laughs> and, and she says, I thought you were one of those like, and she's trying to describe, well, she knows we're not Amish because we drove a vehicle, but she's trying to describe Mennonites. Is what I, I, you know, I was kind of like, we're playing charades, right? And she doesn't even know what she, she doesn't even know the word Mennonite, but she's trying to describe you know, they wear those hats, she says. I said, Mennonites? Yeah, Mennonites, right? And the point is, right, I never preached to that lady, right? I just lived my life. Nine kids. She thought we were part of some kind of religion. I think she may have missed a few of those discipleship opportunities that we had at the pool. Um, 
because we, she thought we were pretty religious. And, you know, our lives testify. Don't miss that. Our lives testify and either validate or invalidate the words we say. And I, I tell my kids from a young age, you've got you've to earn the platform to speak. You've got to earn the platform to speak. And so Jeremiah, he does all these things. He doesn't go to weddings. He doesn't go to funerals. He's single, you know, and then that creates this, and it shall be when you show these people all these words, and they say something like we might hear, why are you saying all this kind of stuff? What, 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 do, we do, what do we do wrong? Right? What do we do wrong? And you see this sort of almost Teflon kind of thing. Then you shall say to them, verse 11, because your fathers have forsaken me, says the Lord, they've walked after other gods and have served them and worshipped them and have forsaken me and have not kept my law. That's why. Okay? That's a pretty specific answer and it's pretty accurate. Verse 12, and you have done worse than your fathers. For behold, each one follows the dictates of his own evil. And if you're an underliner, would you please underline that word heart? So that no one listens to me. Now, I mentioned a couple weeks ago this word dictate. The idea of dictate, they follow the dictates of their evil heart. This is a phrase that's repeated actually many times throughout the book of Jeremiah. And, um, you know, it's, again, it's repeated for emphasis. But let me just point out what we mentioned a couple weeks ago. If I dictate something, then I expect it to be carried out. What, what I dictate, you know, I mentioned, you know, I used to mumble into the, to the dictaphone before the days of, of Dragon Software, right? And, if, and what I speak into the dictaphone uh, or if you've ever had the occasion to, to do that, you speak into a phone, somebody, or maybe you, is going to then go back and hear those words and type them out exactly the words that you said, right? That's, that's what it means to dictate. Or if I, if I dictate something, I am, the, the thing that I, the word that I dictate is the action that needs to be carried out. The point is, I am directing that action. Okay, and so the evil heart is dictating the lifestyle of these guys. You get that? The evil heart is where it starts, and that dictates their life of sin, their life of idolatry. It starts with the evil heart. Please catch this, because we're going to follow the heart here for, for a little bit through, the time, through our time here today. It starts with their evil heart. And that evil heart then dictates their evil lives. Look at this. So that, we might say, therefore, so that no one listens to me. So you see the idea here? I can either be led by my own evil heart, my desires, my passions, or I can be led by God. Because he says here, so that. You get the idea that it's an either-or thing. You've done worse than your fathers. For, for behold, each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart so that no one listens to me. It's, a, it's a sort of an either-or kind of a statement. 
and I mentioned this a million times before, I'll probably keep mentioning it a million times, we're told in our culture to follow our heart. You go to, a, if you're a young person, you go to a career counselor. You know, they're trying to decide what, what career would be right for you. Maybe you've taken one of those tests or something like that. You know, one thing they might ask you is, what are you passionate about? Right? Or you go to a job interview, they might say, what are you passionate about? Well, let me acknowledge, God creates each of us a certain way. We're all wired differently. I get that. But we got to be very careful that our passions, our desires, are under the authority of God according to the dictates, not of my emotions or my desires, but according to the dictates of His Word. Super critical. Super critical and super neglected in our society today. These guys follow the dictates of their own evil hearts so that no one listens to me. Therefore, I will cast you out of this land into a land that you do not know, neither you nor your fathers, and there you shall serve other gods day and night where I will not show you favor. So he says, you're going to go off to Babylon. You like idols? Tell you what, we're going to send you to the hotbed of pagan idolatry. We're going to send you there, you know, and God does this on occasion, right? You know, we're in the desert. Hey, we want meat. God sends you quail. How much quail did he send? Enough till it came out of their noses. Did they ever ask for quail again? Ever? I don't think so. And the nation of Judah here, after the Babylonian captivity, they struggled, right? They had, they had, they had problems. They still had issues, and they still had sin, and they, they were still, you know, Romans 3 sinners. But they never really struggled in their history with pagan idol worship the same way they did before. It's like that God says, you want idols? We'll send you off to where there's lots of idols, see where that, see where that lands you, right? And not in a in a harsh sort of a way or a mean sort of a way, but in a way, in a really a loving way, that sometimes that's how you got to get rid of that thing, right? I love Paul's description in 1 Corinthians. You know, there was a guy that was involved in horrible immorality, and we won't go into the details of that, but you know what I mean. And uh, he tells the Corinthian church, turn that guy loose for what? For the destruction of his flesh. For the destruction of his flesh. Sometimes you got, sometimes before before restoration comes, sometimes you got to really see how bad that thing is that you really want. Sometimes you got to get that thing you really want so you can see how horrible it is, where that road leads. And so, in this case, that road leads to Babylon. Therefore, verse 14, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that it shall no more be said, the Lord who lived, the Lord lives who brought us up, brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north, that's from Babylon, and from all the lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back into their land, which I gave to their fathers. It's a beautiful, you know, there's always hope. Whenever there's a message of punishment, a message of God's discipline, a warning of, of you know, all of that, there's always a message of hope in the Scripture. And in this case, the hope is, you know, their, their whole heritage was, they always talked about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who brought us up from the land of, of Egypt, right, when they were slaves in Egypt. And they all knew that history, and they all celebrated the Passover every year to signify that history and all of that. Well, the day's going to come. Well, we're not going to call, the, call him the, the God who brought us up out of Egypt, but we're going to say the God who brought us up out of the, out of the north. And there's even a, a hint here of yet future, what we would have seen 
no doubt in 1948, and from all the lands where he had driven them. So it's a, this, is a, this is a prophetic um, reference to, yeah, in 70 years, they're going to come back from Babylon. But in a lot more years than that, they're going to be gathered back to their home place from all over the world. And we see that play out even, even today. Behold, I'll send many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall fish them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my, vo- my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. And first, I will repay double for their iniquity and their sin because they have defiled my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable idols. And so, you know, God knows their sin. God's going to bring their destruction. They're being warned. They should have known better because they all had the heritage of, the, of, the, of being the Jewish people. They all had all of the law. They had all the, the tradition with Moses. They had all of that, and they turned their back on it. O oh Lord, verse 19, my strength and my fortress, my, my refuge in the day of affliction. So now this is Jeremiah talking. The Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthlessness, and unprofitable things. Will a man make gods for himself which are not gods? Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. So, um, you know, this may, return, may reference uh, the return from Babylon, uh, may refer, refer to the kingdom age. Some people say it's, it's a reference to the kingdom age, but the point is God always brings restoration. And even as chaotic as the world seems at times, God is always in control. God will always ultimately bring restoration. Chapter 17. See, I left time for chapter 17 right? Chapter 7. Like, if we just stop now, you know you'd walk out of here disappointed. Like, I didn't get, I showed up for that. I mean, it was, chapter 17. Let's stop there. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of a diamond, and it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of your altars. And so this is a strong metaphor, right? An iron pen with a diamond point. That'd be stronger than a pencil with an eraser, right? And, and the message here is it's being written where? It's being written on their heart. I want you to see this heart idea that we're carrying through here. This sin is, the, 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 the reference to their sin is not just a reference to their actions, but it's written on the tablet of their heart. Can I tell you this? Can I tell you this? Can I tell you this? The heart drives the behavior. The heart drives the behavior. The heart drives the behavior. And the heart must be right before God. He says the sin of Judah, you can't get away from it. You can't cover it up. You can't cover it up with religious ceremony. You can't cover it up with all the with all the blood of all the, you know, all the lambs, all the, all the sheep, all the oxen. You can't, you can't cover that up because the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. 
while, your, while their children remember their altars and their wooden images by the green trees on the high hills. And so again, you know, the, the idea of, of generations was very important in the Jewish context, right? They were, they were, you know, it was all about teaching your children in the ways of the Lord. And, and you know, in the body of Christ, we, we emphasize that today. But imagine, you know, he's saying, you know, you guys have, basically he's saying, you guys have sin written with a diamond diamond point on an iron pen into your very heart and then you try to live this this Jewish life or the, you know for us we might say live the Christian life you go to you go to celebrate the Passover you go to the feast three times a year you do all of that you tithe you do this and you do this and you do this and yet at home your kids are watching you with, their, with your wooden images and the green trees, all these pagan idol practices. It was blatantly hypocritical. And who knows our hypocrisy better than our kids, right? Now, so we need to, again, be authentic. We need to be authentic to, to those around us, like Jeremiah. You know, his life is an expression of his words. And we need to be authentic in our homes. Because people see through that if we're not. Now, having said that, let me say this, kids. Your parents are not perfect. We're not talking about parents that... that you know, we're, we're not talking about parents that are, that are human beings. We're talking about blatant disregard for the things of God, but just putting on a religious show. There's a difference. So, uh, I will tell you this, in, in, in our generation today, I feel like there's a little bit of an epidemic of young people who don't know how to cut their parents any slack. And, uh, you know, I've heard some of the craziest stories about, you know, my mom did this on that one day and, you know, I couldn't get over it. Well, we all need to get over it, right? I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about blatant hypocrisy. And these people, they had sin, sin written on their hearts with a pen of iron and a point of a diamond. The sin was there, and the kids saw through it. O oh, my mountain in the field, I will give as plunder your wealth, all your treasures, and your high places of sin within all your borders. And you, even yourself, shall let go of your heritage which I gave you, and I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land which you do not know, for you have kindled a fire in my anger which will burn forever. And so again, God is just. And God is going to give Jerusalem and the temple and the treasures in it over to the Babylonians. And then verse 5. One of the most amazing verses in the scripture. For thus, thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. There's that heart again. You see that? Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs 
from the Lord. I want to camp here for just a second. All right? This is important. This is a fundamental worldview statement. This is a fundamental worldview statement. Tracy's reading a book right now, uh, a literature-based book, um, uh, basically, and, and I've seen I've, different books kind of highlight this, but the idea basically is this. You know, when you're evaluating literature, the author has a worldview, right? Now, if you realize this, no piece of literature is culturally or spiritually inert, we'll say, right? Every author, every movie producer has a worldview. That is, how do I look at the world? And there's a worldview regarding how I look at God and how I look at man. And there, I mean, there's, it's beyond the scope of our time here today. But there's a basic worldview, if you think about it, regarding man, human beings. Some people are convinced that human beings are basically inherently good, and we just need to harness all that goodness and kind of wash away the bad, but at the core, we're basically good. All right? There's another worldview that says human beings are basically bad. They're bent on evil, and you could restore them and, and 12-step them and, and give them psychology books and have them lay on a psychiatrist's couches all day long, try to fix them and, and, you know, patch them together all day long, but at the end of the day, they are inherently evil. Which is the biblical worldview? This one. Yeah. Romans chapter 3. Yeah. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Why does it matter? Because, you know, I'd like to think I'm a pretty good guy, right? Why does it matter? It matters this way. Because if I recognize this biblical worldview, and this is the biblical worldview, that says I'm, I'm born into sin, I'm a sinner, then I can't fix myself. The government can't fix me. The school can't fix me. The counselor can't fix me. The psychiatrist can't fix me. My mama can't fix me. Nobody can fix me except Jesus Christ. Because I have a supernatural problem of my inherent being and everything about me. This is so important. See, if I think that man is basically good, then we just need to rally our energies a little bit, right? I was trying, I almost, oh, I forgot to look it up this morning, but I was going to look it up. Remember back in the, I think it was in the 80s, we are the people, we are the, come on, some, can someone, we are the world, we are the people, and you got all these rock stars that are, you know, you remember this? Young people, I just got to tell you, you need to go home and YouTube it, because it, you're, every now and then in our family, our kids are like, that's obviously a generational thing, and I say, your life experience just has to include this, right? Well, <laughs> Your life experience must include, especially as we read in Jeremiah 17, this we are the world, we are the people. Why can't we all just make the world a better place and live in utopia happy forever? And, you know, some way John Lennon will get reincarnated and he'll be the high priest of this new religion. Right? Am I right? 
That's what we think. I mean, what I just articulated, I hope you say, that would be crazy. But if you think about it, that's not too far off from this worldview. Well, so that, okay, so I don't think John Lennon's going to be reincarnated and be, you know. But if you play that record backwards, you might have some insight into it. Just kidding. So, um, but I do think, you know, hey, if we can all just rally around together, we can conquer COVID. Now, that just came home, closer to home, didn't it? Right? Is COVID a horrible thing, and do we need to, what's our first, what should be our first response to COVID? Prayer. 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 Is it a matter of everybody doing whatever, you know, and if, and if, and what happens over here? Well, if you're a, you know, if you're on one side of the camp, you'd say, well, if everybody would just do my side, and then if you're on the other side of the camp, you'd say, well, if everybody would just do my side, and what do you got? You, got, you just got a bunch of bickering. Now, should we all work together, and, and is there value in being, you know, I was noticing as I've been reading through Acts this year, or the last couple of days, started reading through the book of Acts, how many times it says they're in one accord. And I got to tell you, that early church, they were in one accord. Do you think every one of them agreed on every issue, political or otherwise? No. I don't think so. Because they were human beings. And I was just honestly, I was reflecting on this church. And, you know, I missed this church last week, so I missed my church family this week. And I was like, I- I'm glad... I'm really, ble- I'm really thankful that everybody in this church is not on the same side of the vaccine camp. Everybody's not on the same side of the mass camp. Everybody's not on the same side of whatever camp you want to have. But I think we're in one accord. I think we're in one accord. I'm super blessed by that. I can't tell you how blessed I am by that. And so... All that's saying, it's because I have Jeremiah 17 in my Bible that I don't 100% embrace or believe or trust in any human expert speaking from his own heart. You say, well, that sounds cynical. I think it's just, I think it's just the biblical worldview approach. I think it's just a biblical worldview approach. And as I look at my own life, you know, you can take it from, you know, you can take it from, and I'm, I'm intentionally being, going from the most ridiculous to home, right? So we went from John Lennon to COVID, right? What about my own life? New Year's resolutions. Are New Year's resolutions biblical worldview or, you know, should we all like, Try to quit doing whatever it is we were supposed to not, I mean, are New Year's resolutions inherently bad? No, they're not inherently bad, but they're not the solution. The solution is, I'm a Romans 3 sinner and I need a Savior. I'm a Romans 3 sinner. The wages of sin is death. That's Romans 6. The, 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 all of sin and falls short of the glory of God. 
There is none righteous, no, not one. But then Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? This, is a, this verse 5, chapter 17, verse 5 of Jeremiah is a fundamental worldview statement. Cursed. And here's the point. Here's why I bring that out. Because it says, cursed is the man who trusts in man. We don't want to be cursed. Who makes flesh his strength. The human mind is only as smart as the human mind. The greatest human mind in all of history was human, whoever that is. God is infinitely greater. Here's what happens to the person that trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. You notice this? First of all, his heart departs from the Lord because he no longer trusts in the Lord. He trusts in himself and other men. Let me suggest that's incredibly dangerous. Incredibly dangerous. Even on a spiritual level, right? What did Paul tell the Bere- what did, what did, what did Paul say about the Bereans in Acts chapter 17? The Bereans were more noble, or it was written about, about them. Paul didn't say it. The Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Because they received the word that Paul said with all readiness, and they examined the Scripture daily, such things that were being said, to see if those things were true. Even Paul was scrutinized by the, by the Bereans, or we'll say checked out, evaluated by the Bereans. What I say up here, guess what? I'm human. You should confirm it with Scripture because I'm human. I don't want that pressure, right? How many pastors stand up and say, well, trust me, right? I'm your guy. I don't want the responsibility. I'll say, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Seek Him. Cursed is a man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. What's going to happen to that guy? For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. So you see, you know, again, this is an agrarian society, right? And you picture a shrub in the desert. There's no life there. However, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Let me just tell you this. It's way better to trust in the Lord, whose hope is the Lord. And that person, the person who puts his trust in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord, he's going to be like a tree. What's this remind you of scripturally? Anybody? Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Picture a big tree by the river. It's not going anywhere. It's not sweating when the storm comes. Be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. 
Whatever he does shall prosper. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose hope is the Lord. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers, which spreads out its, fruits by the, its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Can I say this? Two things happen to the person who's, who puts his trust in the Lord. Number one, he'll bear fruit. He'll bear fruit. John chapter 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me bears fruit. Yeah. And number two, this guy's not going to flip out when drought comes. This guy's not going to flip out when drought comes. He will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor cease from yielding fruit, right? Drought comes, tragedy comes, trial comes, difficulties come. Have we experienced that? Not only with COVID, but, I mean, we experience that in all of life, but we've, we all know that very tangibly in the last couple of years, right? The person who puts his trust in the Lord, I mean, he's, that person is sensitive, that person is aware, that person is trying to do the right thing, that person's trying to seek the Lord for wisdom and all of that, but that person is not flipping out. That person doesn't stop bearing fruit, right? Will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Go back to the heart. The heart, verse 9, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So we're still talking about the heart, right? It's deceitful. It's deceitful. The human heart can be deceitful. Well, how does that play out? Man, I need that so bad. I need that so bad. You know, if I had that, I think I'd be satisfied. That is a lie because the heart is deceitful. Let me tell you this, guys. Everybody. Everybody. That thing, that master passion that's not of the Lord, I don't care what it is. That master passion that's not of the Lord, check me on this. Because we all, honestly, I don't think, none of us are unique in this regard. And none of us are exempt in this regard. That thing that we say, man, if I had that, oh, I would be satisfied. You know that's a lie. You know that is a lie from the pit of hell. And it burdens me to see people fall for that lie. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who could know it? Again, I know that God has made us different ways. God's made, you know, you may like a certain kind of music, right? You might like country, right? God could wire you. Don't anybody say it. God could wire you that way, right? God could have put your batteries in backwards so you could <laughs> like country music, right? We're all different. That's okay, right? But those things must be subject to God according to His Word by the power and the discernment of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, 
We're just people following our own heart, and it's, hello, deceitful above all things, and it's desperately wicked. Who, who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings, right? I test the heart. We can be thankful for that. Psalm 139, oh Lord, you've searched me and you know me, right? Ask the Lord to search our hearts. Lord says, David says at the end of Psalm 139, Lord, try me. Test me, show me, and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's what I want. I want you to direct my heart, you to dictate my heart, you to dictate my life, and then I'll follow you. It's altogether different than me following the dictates of my own evil heart. As a partridge that broods but does not hatch, so is he who gets riches but not by right. I'll leave him in the midst of his days at the end, and at his end, he will be a fool. So this is a little parable they, they said in those days. Apparently, they, they thought the partridge uh, sits on the eggs of another bird, and then the chicks recognize that the partridge isn't really their mother, and then they leave. And so it's the same as the riches gained by covetousness. At the end, the person is a fool. A, a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary, O Lord, the hope of Israel. All who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Again, to follow our hearts, to follow our hearts apart from the Lord is to walk away from him. So it's not just Judah. It's not just pagan idol worship. It's all who, who, who walk away from the Lord. All who forsake you shall be ashamed, he says. Then he goes on, Jeremiah now, praying for his own self. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Indeed, they say to me, where is the, world, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. As for me, I've not hurried away from being a shepherd who follows you. Nor have I desired the woeful day. You know what came out of my lips. It was right there before you. Do not be a terror to me. You are my hope in the day of doom. Let them be ashamed who persecute me, but do not let me be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but, I, but do not let me be dismayed. Bring on them the day of doom and destroy them with double destruction. So Jeremiah is really praying for his own vindication, right? He's praying that these will play out. And the reality is, yes, we trust our, uh, the Lord, for life, but we still have to go through daily situations. We still have to interact with, with this world. And so Jeremiah is just experiencing this. And then these last verses, I'm just going to read them all through. Basically, he then takes them back to a practical example for the Jewish people about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a sign, right? Uh, in the Old Testament, in the, in the Ten Commandments, it said, remember the Sabbath keep, and keep it holy because God rested on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a sign to the Jewish people that they were God's. They were God's people, God's chosen people. Everybody else worked seven days a week. The Sabbath was a sign that God would take care of them even if they worked six days a week. So he says, thus says the Lord to me, go and stand in the gate of the children of the people by which the kings of Judah come in and which they go out and all the gates of the Jerusalem and say to them, hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Thus says the Lord, take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring in Bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, nor carry a burden out to your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. But they do not obey nor incline their ear, but made their necks stiff, that they might not hear nor receive instruction. Let that not be said of us, that we did what we wanted to do, and we did not hear or receive instruction. 
And it shall be, if you heed, care, heed me carefully, says the Lord, to bring no burden through the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but hallow the Sabbath day to do no work in it, then shall enter the gates of this city kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their princes, accompanied by the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever. And they shall come from the cities of Judah and from the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin and from the lowland, from the mountains and from the south, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and incense, bringing sacrifice of praise to the house of the Lord. Again, that's a future fulfillment that is even yet future, probably speaking of the millennial kingdom. But if you will not heed me to howl the Sabbath, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire at its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and it shall not be quenched. So, John fourteen twenty one said, Jesus said, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You ever feel like sometimes, God, just show yourself to me. Jesus says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So please, don't let our hearts dictate our lives. Recognize there is a dictation going on. Something's driving something. Don't let our hearts, apart from the Lord, dictate our lives or our actions. The heart is deceptive. It's deceitful and desperately wicked, and it will mislead us if it's not surrendered to the power of the Holy Spirit according to the Word of God. How much better to follow the Lord and know that He'll take care of us, even through challenges like Jeremiah experienced. Like we all know challenge, right? Jeremiah really knew challenge. Jeremiah knew heartache like maybe nobody nobody today might know. I don't know. But he knew real, real depth of challenge, and God carried him through. So, Lord, we thank you for these words. We thank you for your goodness, and we thank you that you desire to bless us, and that as we surrender to you according to your word, you'll make us be like that tree, steady, whether it's storming or not, bearing fruit, whether it's storming or not. And Lord, we want to be those people. So please do that work in our hearts. Give us a love for your word, that we would be those that uh, would not... uh, that would not hang out with the sinful or the scornful, but our delight would be in the law of the Lord and that we would meditate on it day and night and we would thus be like a tree planted by the river. So Lord, have your way with us and do that work in our lives, please, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.